Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this event organised jointly by the Centre for European Reform, uh, the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE and the UK in a Changing Europe. My name is Arnon Menon from King's College London. I'm Director of the UK in a Changing Europe, and I'm delighted on the panel this evening to have Stephanie Flanders, who's Senior Executive Editor for Economics at Bloomberg and Head of Bloomberg Economics. Anna Zizewska, who's founder of Trade and Borders. Thomas Sampson, who's Associate Professor at the Centre for Economic Performance at the LSE. And last but not least, John Springford, who's Deputy Director of the Centre for European Reform. Can I just say before we start, it's fantastic to be able to organise an event with such good, with such good friends and colleagues. Uh, I'm really glad we were able to do this. I'm really thankful to all of you who are attending for putting off your trip into the glorious sunshine outside. If like I, you do have glorious sunshine outside. So without further ado, what I'm going to do is turn to Thomas to kick us off. Just ask, I mean, in a sense, the, the question is, what has the impact of Brexit been? That's where we're going to start from, Thomas. Okay, well, what we recently got was the first trade data after the uh, Brexit deal had been implemented. So the trade data for January 2021, which gave us the first sense of how trade was responding to the new deal. Um, and there were quite some quite kind of startling figures in that data. There was a sharp drop in UK exports to the EU by nearly 40% compared to the previous January. Um, and if we compare that to exports to non-EU countries, they only fell by around 8%. So what that's telling us is that you know, though clearly COVID and lockdown are going on at the same time, this big drop in EU exports, most of it can't be explained by the lockdown. Um, the question then is, is, it, um, is this reflecting of a permanent change in UK trade with the EU? Or is it something temporary related to kind of teething problems with the new border arrangements, the effects of stockpiling in the run up to the deal and you know, some issues with data collection? Um, at this stage, we don't really have an answer to that. We will learn more as time goes by and we get more data. But clearly, something big happened to UK trade in, in January. And the only plausible explanation is, is Brexit happened. And what we need to know now is, you know, what's that going to mean uh, going forward? John, do you want to just step in while Thomas gets his... Oh, Thomas, you're back. Uh, I can I can certainly step in. Um, uh, Thomas, do you, have you got anything else to add, or are you uh, are you happy? No, you uh, go ahead. I am I am okay. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, Thomas Thomas has laid out really well there what the immediate impact was um, in January, uh, thinking about exports to the EU falling significantly and so forth. Um, some of the work that we've been doing at the, at the CER is to try and think about how big a, a drop in trade uh, that is, um, thinking about total goods trade. So uh, since January, um, we have been putting together a kind of modelled UK uh, that did not leave the customs union and single market that month. Um, and the way that we put the, the model together is to select an algorithm um, uh, which, which uses economic data to try and find countries whose trade performance and uh, other econo economic characteristics are really similar to the UK. Um, and then putting together that kind of 
doppelganger UK um, and comparing what happens to UK trade, the real UK's trade compared to the, the doppelganger. And the uh, doppelganger is made up of the United States, Germany, Canada, and New Zealand. They're the countries whose economic performance has been most similar in, in recent years to uh, the UK when you put them together. Um, and what we found was that um, if we're looking at all of the trade which the EU does, goods trade, um, then it, it, it fell about 22% compared to those other countries whose growth, whose trade all grew a little bit. Um, and obviously that's not such a, a, a stark finding as exports down 40% to the EU, but over time, this model will allow us to tell, okay, how much has UK trade fallen compared to a UK that didn't leave the, the single market and customs union in January? We've done these kinds of exercises before. Um, in the run-up to uh, the end of the transition between the referendum and the transition, we, we looked at the impact on overall GDP, you know, the size of the economy, um, using a similar method. Um, and we found that uh, the UK economy by the end of the transition period was about 3% smaller uh, than it would have been if it had remained within the EU. And overall, its trade during that period, so remember this is before the UK left the single market in January, um, while it's still a member of the single market, its goods trade had also fallen by, by 10%. So we're, we're looking at something which is probably a pretty sizable shock. As Thomas says, we don't know how things are going to go over the, over the next few months. They'll probably improve because stockpiling um, won't be such an issue. We'll be coming out of lockdown. So therefore, we'll get more, get more trade going on between the UK and the EU. Um, but watch this space. We'll continue to update our model um, and you'll be able to tell uh, how much UK trade is down as a result of leaving the single market. Thank you, John. Stephanie, just one second before I come to you. Can I just encourage people to put their questions in the Q&A box and you can vote for those questions that you want me to pose to the panel, which makes my life a lot easier. So if you'd like to do that, that would be great. Stephanie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really handy. Uh, it was useful to have the CR analysis just at the same time as the data was coming out and ministers were trying to claim that it was all due to COVID and uh, that everything was, was not nearly as bad as it looked. I think it was nice to be able to strip away um, some of those uh, exclamations. I mean, I do think that clearly the numbers, the official data for January were pretty stunning. Um, and But although maybe the, the impacts are particularly by indiv on individual sectors are perhaps larger than we thought in the sort of medium short term, um, they're certainly not unexpected given the nature of a trade deal uh, and indeed would have been predictable if we'd seen it, you know, hours, more than a few hours before it actually went into force. Um, but I think, I mean, just to sort of cut to the chase, I, I mean, I, it, it's interesting when you look at, I think I saw even today, there was the, the Federation of Small Businesses found that one in four um, small business exporters had completely stopped, or just under one in four, had completely stopped trading with the EU, but only 4% had said we're going to do that permanently. You know, others were waiting to see um, whether they could manage the red tape and all of those things. Um, so I think for me, the, the two things that I have 
you know, I haven't rethought, really and I don't think we, you know, the economists at, at Bloomberg uh, Economics have rethought um, their estimates of the of the medium term impact of Brexit in light of anything that's happened. Certainly, given this very narrow uh, trade deal, but a couple of question mark, I think, is it has but some of this impact that we expect to be a slow burn over several years may have happened much quicker than we thought. And I'm not sure that we've really thought about, you know, what is there, is, is in fact our supply capacity going to be even smaller than we thought in the next few years? Because actually we've had, for the sake of argument, five years worth of adjustment actually could happen in a shorter time period than we thought. I mean, obviously there's long-term productivity effects of, of being less open, but some of this more, the, the sort of red tape stuff, I think inherent in some of the models was that even those effects would take a while to come through. And actually now we see it, maybe this deal has actually brought some of those things, forced them to happen much faster. And so that sort of left me thinking, okay, should we reassess some of our understanding in that light? The, the, the nature of the impact has not changed, but the, the, the timing of it may have changed. I think the other thing which we haven't, we don't talk about, haven't talked about yet um, is, you know, from my perch in Bloomberg, thinking about the impact of the on the city, um, you would have thought, given the complete exclusion from the city for the city from the deal, and little prospect, it seems certainly little short-term prospect of even equivalence, uh, let alone anything else, um, that we might have had larger impacts on the city. And in fact, although it's a lot, I think the numbers are sort of in the region of seven or seven or eight thousand jobs have gone. We should remember, you know, the, the estimates around even just getting only getting equivalents were like 75,000 um, when we were worried about the long term impact. So I don't I think it's too soon to say. I think the city has been will be fundamentally affected. And I think Europe's Europe's financial centre will be fundamentally affected because there's not going to be a replacement for London. You know, a lot of things are going to go to New York potentially. Um, but it is stri it's, it's striking that it hasn't been sort of a cataclysm. Um, and I think we don't yet quite know how that's going to play out. I mean, the things that were not very lucrative, like share trading, is obviously the EU shares have just gone. The, the various, it's all gone to Holland and various other places. Um, but some of the more lucrative stuff, uh, derivative swaps, some of those things are still very much there. The EU would like that to change. Um, but right now, I'd say um, it, there's a, it's interesting, given how bad the deal was for the city, that we haven't seen slightly more. Um, but those are, those are the two things I would say that are sort of in the air, um, things that I would question. But otherwise, it is very much, as you might have thought, from the nature of that trade deal. And what's astonishing to me is just the lack of... You know, there's a lot of desire to sort of explain away these numbers, but none of it is, you know, even the most solid Brexiteer would have said that these things, these were inevitable short term costs. What I think is sort of extraordinary is the, that we haven't seen ministers much more on the front foot about here are the positive, you know, this is our industrial strategy. Well, actually, they've dumped the industrial strategy. You know, this is um, this is how we're going to change the nature you know, competitiveness of the UK I mean we've had less of that um, than in the last few years which just seemed to me very odd when you look at see how these numbers are coming through brilliant thank you I might later on actually ask you what you think positive economic outcomes out of this might be what can the what could the government do 
worried to try and address this. But for the moment, Anna, you're one of those wonderful and all too rare people who actually understands trade and you know the, the details of it. So can you just explain to us what is happening? What accounts for these figures that we've, we've heard from Thomas and John? Um, yes, I will certainly try. Um, I think the first three months, uh, first of all, I think the first thing to mention is that they, the first three months have not been representative. Stockpiling uh, absolutely was the case, as Stephanie mentioned. Uh, other than that, companies have postponed or attempted to postpone the more difficult, complex transactions, the, the supply chains that require moving goods back and forth uh, from the EU and then uh, into the UK and then back to the EU as much as possible. So I think the first three months are really not representative of how this is going to look towards, towards the end of uh, the first half of the year, for example. Um, but still, within the first couple of months, we've seen, we've seen a, a kind of a couple of uh, trends emerging. The first one is you know, there's been quite a lot around calling these teething problems and saying that this will all go away. And there are, I guess, arguments for, for and against. There's an element of confusion around what's required, what the new uh, paperwork is, uh, what the new requirements are, what the board arrangements are. That's, that's just because all of this has been done in the very last minute, pretty much. There's still quite a lot of confusion around that, how to do certain things in practice. So that part of it will get better over time. But the question remains how much of, of the confusion, how much of the, of the drop results from this, um, from this kind of lack of awareness or kind of getting, getting to grips with the new requirements and how much is because of the actual new trade barriers. So when all is said and done, is it going to be for a business that, is, that requires a health certificate? Is the question, do I know how to obtain this health certificate? Or is the question, you know, with the additional hundred pounds that this uh, health certificate costs per consignment, is my business still profitable? Does it still make sense for me to do certain things in the, in certain way? And I think this is where we are. And obviously, some industries are a bit ahead, uh, especially the industries where where uh, they're more regulated, such as uh, agriculture and fishers and so on, where there are more requirements, but also where stockpiling is not possible for, for obvious reasons. But other industries are only getting to that point now. So the question is, you know, assessing where we are with our supply chains. Is my business model still possible? Are my clients happy to absorb, absorb tariffs if I need to send goods back and forth? Can I use some of these simplifications that the government introduced or, um, or uh, is trying to, to um, advertise for, for different uh, issues, for different problems resulting from this new trade agreement? And as a result of that, you know, can I continue in the same way or do I need to change something? And, and I think the, this is more or less where we are with, with everything. Plus, the other side of this is that there's still so much confusion as to as to what needs to happen. I, I had a client uh, call me up in, in February to say, you know, you, you told me there's going to be this new border. And yet I just imported something from Germany and no questions were asked. I got no paperwork. And, you know, why are you talking about with this new border? There, there are no uh, there are no barriers. So so I think these two processes are, are going to continue kind of simultaneously on one hand companies just trying to understand what is required and on the other one assessing whether what they're doing and you know the, the way that they have been uh, operating for a while is it still profitable is it still possible does it still make sense and are the, their customers willing to uh, continue in the same fashion 
Thank you. And it's, I mean, it's worth emphasising the point that only half the board is there as yet. Uh, so this is going to keep changing as the British government implements its side of the border. But Thomas, you've touched on this, and this is for any of you really, I suppose. How, how easy or possible is it to unpick the Brexit impact from the COVID impact? You've talked a bit about how you've done it for trade, but in terms of larger macroeconomic impacts, is that something we're going to be able to do in the near term, or we're going to have to wait a long time to get the data we need to be able to separate them out? I start and then maybe others can, can add on. I think one of the interesting things about COVID as compared to Brexit is that the, the sectors which are hit hardest are very different for the two shocks. It, the COVID is principally a shock to non-tradable services, things like, you know, it's the hairdressers, it's, it's restaurants. Um, which are, you know, some of them may be involved in international trade indirectly, but they're not what's driving the UK's uh, trade flows. Whereas, you know, Brexit matters for, for tradable services, as Stephanie talked about with, you know, financial and business services in particular, but it's also, you know, probably the, the good sector that we've seen hardest hit so far is the agriculture and, and, and food sector, which hasn't been hit so much by COVID. Um, so where I'm going with this is that, I think there's a lot we can learn about disentangling COVID versus Brexit by looking at the uh, relative um, sectoral effects and which sectors are being hit hardest. And also by using the timing, we kind of know what happened in the first lockdown uh, when we had COVID hitting and not uh, Brexit. So for example, one thing we saw in the first lockdown is that trade with the EU and with non-EU countries fell by a similar amount due to COVID. Um, and that, you know, that's one reason why when we see kind of differential trade changes in EU versus non-EU trade, I feel reasonably confident in attributing that difference to uh, Brexit. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that you've got these two big shocks going on at once means that you potentially can be misled by just looking at the aggregate numbers. But once you're prepared to go a little bit deeper and disaggregate, there's lots of scope for separating the two shocks partly now and then inevitably we will learn a lot more over time as better data becomes available. John? Um, yeah, just, just a, a couple of points to add to that. I mean, the, the first one is that in the first lockdown, loads of countries closed down their manufacturing plants um, because they were just like, we don't know uh, where this virus is transmitted. Precautionary principle, let's close down you know absolutely everything and just uh, try and try and stop the spread of the virus in subsequent lockdowns in the autumn for example in france and the netherlands which which locked down earlier than we did and harder than we did because their waves started earlier um governments didn't do that because they had realized that manufacturing plants generally aren't a real locus of transmission um, and so we don't see in the autumn and the, and the winter we don't see the same drop off in goods trades that we saw in the first lockdown. And so that's why I think it's important, at least in this early period, as, as Thomas has said, you focus on the focus on goods trade for this early period. Um, and then when you know we're back online, the EU's back online, we've all been vaccinated, then we can start to think about um, services and and uh, um, and broader macroeconomic variables like GDP. Just two other brief points. One is about migration. Um, your colleague, Jonathan Portes, with Michael O'Connor, um, 
discovered that there was a, a really big drop off in the number of respondents to the labour force survey who were from the EU over the course of 2020. Um, you know, his, his estimate puts it at about a million people who have, who have left. Uh, subsequent uh, studies, one by the Resolution Foundation, has, has found that number to probably be a bit high, and maybe it's about 500,000. Um, that's down to the pandemic, right? And uh, that means that our labour force is going to be smaller, and that inevitably means that our economy is going to be smaller too. Um, but whether they come back or not, that's down to Brexit as much as anything else. Um, and so in the future, if we don't see um, the same rates of net migration happening, particularly from the EU, um, then we can say that's down to Brexit. That's a big reason why our economy is smaller. You know, you may be pro or anti having those more people or against free movement, but we can at least say that this is an economic cost, in inverted commas, which we can assign to Brexit. Um, and then the final point is just about um, is just about investment. Um, that, like services, um, uh, and uh, to a certain extent, migration is dependent upon the recovery from the pandemic. Um, we should see a fair amount of investment come back before we left the single market. Then investment had been flatlining for for four years. Um, since the referendum, but I expect that it will pick up a bit, not least because there's going to be what economists call import substitution going on, which means that things which previously have been imported from the EU will now be, once the government puts the, uh, the UK border up on our side, and that those, some of those processes, some of those goods will be done domestically. Um, and that means that there's going to be investment going on. Um, and we'll also have a, a big pickup in investment because we've all been locked down for 12 months. And so there's pent up demand for new computers and new machinery and all of that stuff. So I would expect there to be a big recovery investment over the next, uh, the next few months. The question is, does it peter out and does it, does it end up at a level which is lower than the capital stock we would have had in the economy if we had remained within the single market and customs union. And Stephanie, if it's not unfair to put you a sort of specific subset of that last point, what, what, what's your expectation in terms of foreign direct investment going forward? Uh, we used to be very good at attracting that. Do you think I mean, we're going to see... I mean, it's interesting. I think, uh, I think we've, we've continued to be quite good at attracting it, even in, even in recent months. And mm -hmm. I suspect all of the things that used to be attractive, the uh, English-speaking um, general reputation for good rule of law and all those kind of things, and very easy, I mean, certainly very easy, um, low barriers to setting up businesses and all of those things which actually do make a difference. I think you'd expect us still to do reasonably well, but I think there's, it's hard to make the argument that it's going to be a lot, that it's going to go up. Um, and I think... Uh, going back to some of the points about the red tape you know even if you get over the red tape and even if you get used to it if you're choosing between here and Slovakia or somewhere you know why would if you if you don't have to do all that in order to trade with you why why would you use the UK as a base so I think there could be there could be foreign investment that's associated with import substitution you know the same people if it's in your interest, you know, there's lots of businesses, in fact, in the same uh, survey that I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of businesses talking about setting up um, 
satellite operations or at least an office in the EU, which obviously seems ironic, but, you know, a small, some, either a small or a large number of jobs uh, going to Europe in order to provide exporters here with a base there that they can use. One would expect once, <laughs> once the restrictions kick in the other way, you'd expect that there'd be a fair number of EU companies for whom it would make sense to have a UK base. Um, so you'd have that sort of initial phase of, of FDI. Um, but the, the classic, I mean, clearly the classic through the 80s and 90s justification for, um, and certainly the kind of single market justification for UK FDI um, would go away. But you could argue that, I mean, that a lot of supply chains are changing globally and potentially there would have been slightly less of that anyway. I mean, it's for the, that is another very hard counterfactual. Can I just congratulate the audience because no one has tried to ask a question through the chat function yet, so that's fantastic. Uh, and turning to you, Anna, just given where we are, so we're outside the single market and the customs union, is there more that the government could do to make life easier for those trying to export? Are there, is it, is it, are there, are there tricks that are being missed here that could sort of make this process easier than it's turned out to be? Uh, absolutely. Uh, where to begin? Uh, I think, you know, one, one thing to mention is that the first three months of this year, for me, have been absolutely hijacked by rules of origin and working on the rules of origin. Um, and, and that in itself, I think, is quite indicative. The fact that this whole tariff-free deal depends on the ability to meet rules of origin is something that seems to have escaped uh, from, the, from the kind of... Um, the messaging, the government's uh, uh, messaging to in, in the last couple of months in the run-up to, to the 1st of January. The fact that it's taking companies by surprise in itself demonstrates that much more could have been done in terms of communicating these changes, communicating these requirements uh, to the private sector. And, and I think what's interesting now uh, that with the, with the uh, government deciding to postpone uh, and extend in time introduction of barriers on, on this side, so on inbound, uh, for trade, inbound trade to the UK, is that on one hand, it gives companies more time to adjust. It gives the government more time to adjust. It gives the government more time to introduce IT systems, processes, forms, and so on and so forth. For companies, that is also beneficial from, from that perspective that they do have a little bit more time. However, what's still not really fully communicated is just because you don't submit customs declarations, for example, because we don't have these controls on our side yet, doesn't mean that you're not responsible for that. That doesn't mean that you don't have uh, legal liability for everything that's coming into the UK. Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies do not know that. So as a result, whenever the, the obligation is introduced, the first set in, uh, in June and then in December, there's going to be a lot of companies not being able to meet these requirements because they haven't been taking note of everything that they're bringing in or they haven't been aware that they need to um, that they need to do that. So I think that that's definitely one side of it. And another one is that because these requirements have now been extended throughout 2021, it's going to be a continuous period of change, a continuous period of adjustment. And, and, and the UK government will have to kind of gradually continue to inform businesses of, of the new changes that are upcoming. And that has not been something that, that's been done very well until now. It's just the clarity of this message, making this message uh, business-centric uh, uh, 
understandable, user-friendly and, and uh, actionable for businesses. So extending that into a period of the year is, is just going to make things slightly more uh, difficult for the government. And while, while you've got the floor or while you've got a yellow line around your box on Zoom, uh, when do you expect the government to start implementing checks on imports? It's a question from Teresa Yabarek. I mean, do you think they'll do it when they've said, which I think is the start of next year is the latest deadline, isn't it? I think to be perhaps, yes. I think, you know, checks at the border is not necessarily what I'm, uh, um, as I just mentioned, concerned about. Yeah. My, my biggest concern is uh, import declaration, custom, import declarations, customs declarations, and that is due the first lot, the first kind of uh, declarations for, for the first six months are due in uh, June, July. So I think this is going to be the first kind of test to see are companies at all aware of, of uh, new requirements or is just everyone, you know, are, is everyone bringing goods in without, without any um, um, kind of paperwork or without uh, writing this in, in their records as they're supposed to? Brilliant. I, I warn you all that in a minute I am going to pose the question that Max Alter has put here and is the winner at the moment on sunlit uplands. And we'll extend that a bit to not just sunlit uplands in terms of positives of Brexit, but anything the government could or should be doing given what's going on. But before that, I know, John, you've done some work on this in the past, but anyone else who cares to chip in can do so. Is Do we know anything yet about differential regional impacts of this? Is it too soon to say? Um, well, we know, thanks to some work done by uh, an economist called Timo Fetzer um, at the University of Warwick, that um, between the referendum and leaving a single market, there had been a differential impact already with um, those regions which have more larger manufacturing bases. Um, they had seen, on average, a larger reduction compared to if they had remained within the EU in terms of their overall economic output. Um, and that's kind of what we predicted, really. Um, I and some other economists had, had done some work on this, and it, it's pretty much, it's fairly straightforward in the sense that um, a lot of these places that have a lot of manufacturing activity tend to trade more with the EU than somewhere like London, for example, which is a, has a more global outlook, doesn't have such a big manufacturing se uh, sector. Uh, the city of London, trades more with the rest of the world than it does with the EU. So, you know, that that kind of uh, that kind of process is something that you would expect to happen, that um, poorer regions that don't have such well-developed services sectors, and which are highly integrated into EU supply chains and their manufacturing base, that they're more likely to get hit. Um, and this is also true, obviously, of uh, uh, regions of the UK where agriculture and fishing well, they're, they're not huge employers anyway, but, you know, they're going to take a bit more of a hit, hit too. Um, I should just say that there have been some work done which suggested that the effect would be the opposite, um, that the City of London might get hit harder um, and other places like the Thames Valley, you know, which are sort of services centres, might, might struggle more. But that doesn't look like that's going to be the case. Despite the nature of the deal? Despite the nature of the deal, yeah. I mean, one way to think about this is the financial crisis. Um, if, you know, everybody said, oh, London's over, 
you know, huge global financial crisis. It's a it's an international banking sector centre. Um, you know, we're going to have a real struggle in London for several years. Um, and then in 2011, 2012, London's economy was growing again, quite reasonably rapidly. Um, and the reason for that is it's a really big urban area with lots of skilled people who do all sorts of things. Um, and uh, office space gets taken over if, you know, if the bank doesn't want to use it anymore, then it will get taken over by some other uh, institution, perhaps financial technology or something like that. Um, with the LSE, to be so, honest. But, <laughs> because it's affectable, then um, it can cope with shocks pretty well. Whereas um, those regions where, I don't know, a, a, you know, a manufacturing partner is a really big, important employer and it loses that, um, then it's harder to, for it to generate the investment needed to replace those jobs easily. Does anyone else want to come in on this, uh, Thomas? Yeah, Sorry, I, I think that's a great kind of summary of what we've seen so far. I guess I would like to have maybe kind of a note of caution on what the future impacts might be for regions like London that are more dependent on services. Um, and you know, I think I think there's there's two reasons to think that we don't quite know what's going to happen there yet. One is that we have no data yet on how trade in services and in particular business services are being affected by the deal. As Stephanie was saying, we haven't seen big impacts on financial services yet. But clearly, it is the EU's intention to try over time to chip away at the city's position and to gradually change kind of regulations in a way that forces business to move to EU markets. Now, I, how successful they will be, I don't know, but that, that's the plan. Um, and then the, the second point I wanted to make was that part of what makes London's economy very resilient and part of the reason there are a lot of high-skilled, flexible workers in London has been migration from the EU in the past. And, you know, we don't quite know yet how how big the effect on migration is going to be once all the new restrictions are in place. But you can at least imagine a scenario in which it becomes much more difficult to attract top talent to, to London. And that leads to kind of a gradual flow of, of particularly high-skilled businesses um, away from, from London. Now, that would kind of be the negative scenario for London. I don't necessarily know that that's going to take, take place. But there are, there are reasons to be concerned that you know, some of the factors which have driven London's success in the past are being eroded by this deal. Uh, Stephanie or think, Anna, do you want to come in on the region? Yeah, or? I mean, I, 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 think that's, I think that's fair. And I certainly wouldn't say, um, I don't think there's a scenario in which, you know, overall London comes out better, or at least in the sort of short term. Um, there, it'd be very difficult to offset uh, even if you think that the city is still quite strong and still going to produce a lot of tax revenues and all those things. Um, and you could potentially, as John points out, there's actually more, I mean, most of, most of the activities of the UK financial sector actually involve UK citizens. Um, of the exports, uh, he's right that it's, there's, there's more going to outside the EU. And so you could, you could imagine a, case, a scenario in which the, you win some new business they're trying to attract different kinds of fintech firms now and that offsets some of what you've lost in europe as i said, I said at the start i think it's europe is the europe as a, as a continent is the loser from this not necessarily just london because europe as a continent has lost potentially is losing um it's certainly going to have a diminished global financial center and there isn't going to be a replacement 
um, any anytime anytime soon. Um, but going back to your sort of broader point about uh, what kind of structural adjustment you might see, what kind of benefits you might see. I mean, there has always been this kind of disconnect with between the sort of manufacturing renaissance view of Brexit, which seemed to be quite, you know, was part of the levelling up rhetoric, uh, was part of the sort of anti-city undertone of the Brexit campaign, with the reality, which is, if you're going to have, if you're going to maximise sovereignty, um, it is going to be manufacturing that's going to potentially going to be hurt the most. So I think if, we're, if we move on to the sort of Uplands discussion, I think, you know, if you you have to have some kind of view on how you're going to um, increase the competitiveness of manufacturing to offset the, the disadvantages of this deal. And I think you also have to be thinking strategically about which industries actually need some form of sexual deal, or at least some form of kind of Swiss style arrangements. Um, and, you know, where does it really matter? Like in pharma, um, or the chemicals industry, you know, we've all read about what a complete nightmare there is now for having to list the and the, 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 the do the rules of origin of all of your the components of your individual chemicals and all of these things, let alone the wine exporting industry, all of those examples. But the, you have to decide on some industries that you really care about that could potentially give you some of that leveling up or give you some of that manufacturing revival. And how are you going to help them? You know, battery production is the other classic one for the car industry. I mean, you're not you're not going to get anywhere unless you decide now how you're going to have battery product, serious battery production in the UK. So and I think, you know, the upland is maybe there and the, I guess the, on the, the one thing that might be good for levelling up, at least on a sort of very broad or at least from an egalitarian standpoint, is if we, that we could potentially have more upward pressure on wages as a result of the, the demographic shift and the reduction in, in population, at least in some sectors. Um, and that is also something that I would be thinking about if I was government, you know, if you maybe have a smaller pie, but you've got the, there, there could be now forces which would help divide it a little bit in a fairer way and you could say that that was your your dividend um for certain sectors and certain parts of the community even if you're not overall you're not better off i, I am going to come back to uplands and what the government should be doing max i'm not ignoring you but there's a more specific regional question here which you can all duck if you want uh but it's Paul Nugent's question which i, I don't propose to go into the stuff on on public opinion in northern ireland but are there specific impacts economically we can expect in Northern Ireland because of the protocol? Will Northern Ireland end up doing rather well? I mean, some people have said Northern Ireland, if this is played right, ends up with the best of both worlds. Uh, some of the stuff we've heard since the protocol has started being implemented implies something very different. But do any of you have thoughts? Anna, you're nodding in a very reassuring way, which makes me think you might have thoughts. Uh, thoughts, concerns, uh, observations, I don't know. Uh, yes, uh, in terms of, of regional impact, I think Northern Ireland is particularly interesting, if nothing else, just because this is the first part of the UK where on inbound uh, imports, all the, all the, all the barriers have been, uh, have been uh, applied. Uh, well, almost all the barriers have been, have been applied for uh, trade uh, coming from uh, GB. Uh, it's, I think it's definitely too soon to tell, but the the fact that we have uh, this internal border and all formalities necessary uh, with that go with a, a full customs and regulatory border uh, between GB and Northern Ireland is is slowly starting to 
uh, to, to, to impact supply chains. And this is more of a, a anecdotal evidence than anything else. It's basically what I'm seeing with my clients is that, you know, uh, it's the same that we're seeing everywhere else is the question of how to avoid these formalities where, you know, can we supply from the Republic? Do we need to bring goods this way? And I think as, as companies are, are asking themselves these questions, uh, there, there might be some shifts. We, we were, I think, uh, about a year and a half ago when the, when the protocol was published, there was this notion of um, this might be the best of both worlds, but I think it's very, very clear right now that just from the practical perspective, it's not because the confusion that we're seeing everywhere else around the borders is double or triple that of, of what's, you know, the, 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 in Northern Ireland, basically we have double or triple that amount of confusion. New systems, new processes, issues around uh, procedures for determining whether products are at risk. Uh, TSS, uh, so trader um, uh, service, uh, that's, that's new. All the, all the kind of border processes, all of it is new and it's all being tested in this real life environment uh, causing uh, uh, quite a lot of confusion and, and, and difficulty. So I think definitely uh, it's going to be incredibly interesting to see uh, how this plays out in the longer term. But I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that the best of both worlds notion is, is long gone at this point. Excellent. Thank you. Do please keep I mean, a writing your questions, but be voting for them, particularly ones that are specifically economic, because I'm sort of a, a avoiding a little bit the ones that aren't economic, but we've now reached Max's question, I think, uh, which isn't just about what are the economic benefits of uh, Brexit, but also about what, if anything, could and should the government be doing given the impacts we've seen already to uh, help the British economy through this period? John? Uh, okay, sure. I mean, the, the first thing to say is that if you stick up trade barriers with your nearest trade partner, on average and overall, you are going to be poorer than you would have been. So what we're talking about is offsetting, is, is things that can offset that, or that there may be sectors that do better. The sectors of the economy that might just do better are the ones that I pointed out when I was talking about import substitution. You know, those um, industries that can expand their production because uh, imports from the EU have got more costly and so... You know, we may see we may see uh, uh, an expansion of investment in those areas. Um, that may be some areas like agriculture. <laughs> you know, but obviously, other farmers are taking a huge hit because they've lost the EU market. So it's always quite difficult to be able to know exactly which sectors are going to do well. Probably at a broad level, all of them are going to do worse. But there might be individual uh, sort of subsectors and individual businesses that that do quite well through import substitution. Um, in terms of things that we could do, I mean, the, the thing that we haven't really mentioned so far is the vaccine issue. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I've always been a bit sceptical about, oh, well, we can get rid of the dead hand of EU bureaucracy and um, uh, invest in the companies of the future. Um, but one thing that uh, things like emergency response, pandemic response, um, you could see that there are some potential benefits in the sense that uh, we can get rid of the precautionary principle um, and say we are going to uh, tie, uh, get involved with industry 
and we're going to um, be the handmaiden of deals between industry and our, you know, our, our, our universities. We're going to um, really work hard on those issues, and we're going to we're going to try and get new vaccines, new pharmaceuticals to market quicker through a through a, a, a more rapid and less bureaucratic process of authorizing them. Um, and I think that is that is potentially possible, and you can see that in a few other areas as well, like. Um, genetically modified crops, for example, where the EU has um, some pretty strict restrictions on the use of GMOs. The UK has long wanted those eased. Um, and you can imagine that after Brexit, that's gonna happen. And we may end up with a more flourishing ge genetically modified crop sector um, than the EU. And then the final point is just, um, uh, is just about migration. I think it's possible that we end up with, um, while a, a, a migration system, which is not actually overall as open to the world in general, um, without free movement, because free movement meant that people could just come and go as they pleased. Um, I don't think it's gonna be as bad as I originally thought when this process took off. Um, the provisions under the Immigration Act aren't as restrictive as they might have been under, for example, Theresa May, who is a uh, you know more sceptical about immigration as a prime minister. Um, the salary threshold is lower, um, which is a good thing, which means that it's easier for people to get in if they're going to come into a job which doesn't necessarily pay that much. Um, and there are sectors of the economy that have been uh, have been let off. So, for example, the salary threshold for education or for the NHS is quite a lot lower, which means that we can bring in a lot more, a lot more people. Um, so, so I think that there are, you know, there are some bright spots, but overall, uh, we're looking at uh, the economy being clearly worse off as a result of Brexit. Thomas, I'm going to come to you in a minute because I think both Anna and Stephanie have hinted at what they think a government should do. But can I just press you on one thing very quickly, John, which is is there really going to be another area where speed trumps scale and price quite as emphatically as has been the case with the vaccine? I mean, I sort of take your point, but I mean, this is a case where speed really was of the essence and nothing else really mattered. Are you seriously saying that in other sectors we might approximate that? Well, I think it's, you know, it's not necessarily only about speed. I, I take your point, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we only have pandemics like this, hopefully, you know, once every hundred years. Um, but but it's, it's, it's certainly the case that, um, you know, if, if you really want to go down the route of, we are actually going to take a lot more risks in terms of how innovative we want our pharmaceutical sector to be. Um, then you can say, right, we're going to make authorization easier. We're going to have, for example, human challenge trials. Um, so, you know, we're going to take a few more risks in the trials process. Um, we are um, going to make sure that our, um, our trials are much more rapid. Um, that's a complaint which I think is fair about the EU's uh, uh, trials system is that it tends to be quite slow. Um, so you, there are things that you can do, certainly. The big, the big question is whether it offsets the cost of not being part of a, a, a huge market. Um, it may do in some very high technology, um, high knowledge areas like pharmaceuticals, but probably not in something like cars or chemicals. Okay, by way of a quick 
plug, I should say it's well worth listening to the CER's latest podcast, which John did with Jonathan Portos, that I thought was really fascinating, actually, on a lot of these issues. But sorry, Thomas, I'm going to give you your chance at Sunlight Uplands. So I guess, I mean, you know, in terms of trade policy, the area that has been touted as a possible Sunlit Upland is the possibility of uh, new trade deals with countries outside the EU. I'm fairly skeptical that over any reasonable time frame, there are likely to be much benefits from that route. Um, the, you know, the biggest prize would be a deal with the US. I think the Biden administration has already made clear that negotiating new trade agreements is not a priority. Um, there, you know, for various technical reasons, it's going to be allowed back become a lot more difficult for the US to sign up to new trade deals at all. So I, you know, I don't think we're going to see much progress on a UK US deal in the next uh, few years, unfortunately. Um, and I would suggest that the priority for trade policy now shouldn't be jetting around the world trying to find new partners to do shiny new trade deals with, but trying to find ways to improve the existing deal with the EU, which is still our, by far our most important trade partner. Um, and, you know, to point to a couple of potential you know, mitigations that I think would be very valuable. One would be to find a solution to uh, SPS rules that improves the flow of uh, food products with the EU. There seems to be some openness on the EU side potentially to doing a deal if the UK is willing to make some uh, commitments in terms of health and, and, and animal safety standards. Um, given the, the lack of progress on the US deal, refusing to make those commitments in the hope of striking a deal with the US seems to me the wrong trade-off at the moment. Um, the other area where there's obvious scope for improvements is in terms of short-term uh, labor mobility and trying to do kind of a, a side deal that would make it easier for UK workers to do work on short-term assignments in the EU. And again, that seems like an area where there was some potential during the negotiations for a deal to be struck and the UK um, didn't take that opportunity. But I think it's, it's something we are going to have to uh, Reevaluate, and I think both these things are things that, even if they don't happen under the current government, almost certainly will be re, re will revisit them under under whatever the next government is, because there are opportunities to to smooth the flow the flow of trade with the EU that we're not currently taking. Brilliant. I, I mean, we've got ten minutes left, and I want to address the Simon Hicks question and the John Peake question. But before that, I've got a very quick question for you, Anna. From Rose, could I just do literally just to add on to what Thomas yep, said about the US did all to say because our economist did the numbers on this a few years ago to rep in order to just to make up the loss from leaving the European single market, you actually need four or five free trade deals with the US, and there's only one the America, so that's the sort of that's how hard it is <laughs> to make up the gap. You know, I the US is the only game in town, and you need four of them, in fact. Yeah, I think Thomas a few years ago with Swati Dingra did some work on this and came up with a number for a free trade deal with the US that scrapped all tariffs that was about 0.4% of GDP, if I recall. Yeah, it's kind of it, it's an order of magnitude lower than the estimated costs of leaving the EU. So it's it's so even if you, in the best case no, scenario, it doesn't make up for it. And you're basically if you add up everything else, you get to about the same as another US, but you still you're still pretty short. You must be a little bit impressed. I remember the number, Thomas. But anyway, uh, Anna, <laughs> uh, 
Rose Riddle asks the question, if, are we in breach of either the TCA or our WTO obligations by not implementing SPS checks on imported goods and by not having put up our side of the border? Are we in breach of obligations? Okay, so uh, there's a, a theory here and, and I, I guess practice uh, on, 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 are we in fact in, in breach? I think there's something to be said and I've said it several times for uh, in terms of uh, introducing short-term transitional measures. Uh, I think this is where we are right now calling this, and, and I'm, this is not a legal perspective, so I think we need to get a lawyer to answer that properly, but uh, either there's, you know, these, these are short-term measures uh, given exceptional circumstances, and I think we can basically get away with it. I think that's what my answer is going to be. Just very quickly on this, uh, uh, on the uplands and, uh, and the difference. From just when I work with companies, the absolute best case scenario, the absolute, absolutely best news I get to give, whether I reclassify someone's uh, uh, goods to the point where there are no tariffs or where I manage to get them um, uh, compliant with rules of origin, the absolutely best case scenario is that there are no tariffs, so you only need to pay for import and export declaration, which are around 30, 35, 40 pounds per declaration per consignment. So if you calculate that, by the number of the annual number of consignment each company um, sends exports and imports how many FTAs you know is it possible to sign that will make up for that that number the administrative cost in itself uh, is impossible to 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 make up or address by by any number of FTAs with any number of partners brilliant thank you uh, Simon Hicks is asking whether competition between the UK and the EU would, would make both of them more innovative and we'll come and look back on this thinking actually we did, we did both sides a bit of a favour there by, by having that competition and out of that competition came greater efficiency. Do we find that compelling? Sorry Simon if I sort of made that sound. I've got, I, I've got, I've got and I suppose it, you know it's fair enough to answer that as I kind of suggested that that might be the case in my previous answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, yes and no, and it depends. I mean, thinking about the vaccines issue, um, what would have been the ultimate, what would have been the best outcome there would have been for um, the UK to have been within the decision making of the European Medicines Authority and for the UK to have said that we've got, we've got all of this data about AstraZeneca, we're pretty convinced it's fine. Um, we, also we also think that we shouldn't deploy the sort of the safety firsts uh, principle too much because there's good reason to think that actually if we do first doses and then we do another three months before we do second doses that actually uh, you know that's going to be fine and that will really solve some of the supply issues that the EU is going to be facing and so on and so forth so in that, in that scenario having the UK within the tents being involved in decision making and moving it toward a bit more towards the UK way of thinking, I think would have been beneficial for the EU as a whole and for the UK, obviously, because then we wouldn't have ended up in this kind of vaccine nationalism, tit for tat, potentially quite dangerous situation where we might see um, trade barriers being imposed on vaccines, which would be a disaster. Um, I think I think there are there is possibility in less kind of emergency life or death situations where competition could potentially be helpful. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if the UK, you know, if, genetically modified organisms take that example again um you know if the uk can demonstrate that actually this is perfectly safe it increases yields it means we have to use fewer pesticides which means that 
um, fields don't end up being these awful deserts, it means that we don't have such huge declines in bird populations. Now, if we can show that, um, then there might be big benefits from the EU from then realizing that actually that works. Alternatively, if you know we end up with some ecological problems as a result of the widespread use of genetically modified crops, then that's fine. So there are there are obviously some areas where competition could potentially work. It's just that I'm not convinced that they would in any way outweigh the benefits of having being part of a very large market and that your companies can take advantage of a huge consumer base. Um, and final point, sorry, because I've been going on too long, but final point is that um, if you look at new startups in the tech sector, a lot of them go to the US to start off with because there's a big single market which is pretty borderless when it comes to the internet. And there's a huge amount of venture capital. Um, and so having a big market can be really beneficial for innovation because it means that you've got more potential money to, to get your products off the ground and you've got a bigger number of consumers to sell it to. Does anyone mind if I move on to the final question? Just on the, sorry, just on the competitive thing. I mean, there is something rather odd. I mean, the traditional argument for free trade is to increase competition and get innovation through competition. So it can't be that reducing trade is also good for competition. I just don't buy that. Okay, just, I wanna move on to one more question. Rory McMahon, my, my humble apologies. I know your question has been the most popular one, but I wanted to stick to ones that were broadly economic in nature, even though yours is fascinating. So. With, with all due respect, I'm going to ignore it for the moment. Uh, I want to pose John Pete's question uh, and pose it in a slightly broader form. And I suppose to all of you, I would say, does any of this really matter in the least? Because as far as we can tell, even now, there seems to be no political sort of blowback for this. And once we're out of lockdown quicker than everyone else because of our vaccine rollout, then actually the government's in the sunlit uplands anyway. I do think... Um... It was, a it was a question that I asked the economist because it seemed when it seemed to be that we were going to gain about six months of recovery. Um, I wondered whether that was the case, even if we could have done all of this within the EU, the fact that we've done it without the EU. Um, could we say that that was an advantage? I think, you know, the, the recovery was still was doing remember quite a lot of the major European economies have been better at sustaining economic activity even with much reduced mobility um, than we have uh, and that is why we came with the end of last year we were looking so much worse so uh, I would say that there we're not the, the the sheer numbers on vaccination will overstate the potential economic advantage we might get because they have just done a better job at combining economic activity with the pandemic um, and we came into it with uh, depending on which country you look at in a deeper hole we came into this we're going to come into this recovery with a deeper hole and with all of these short-term and medium-term effects of brexit so but i think it would be quite hard to argue we may have we may have made up some of the brexit disadvantage with our vaccine um premium uh or bonus um, but I think it would be quite, certainly in a year or in a year, 18 months time, it would be quite hard, hard to argue that we were better off. But, but in a sense, and I'll pass this on to any of you other three, I mean, I know you know the numbers, uh, but I suppose the question still remains, does it matter? I mean, this is as much about public mood as it is about anything else, uh, whatever the, the, the underlying macroeconomic data might suggest. And in a sense, politically, does this mean the government can do this and be fine? 
rather than economically, because I think we've all established that economically there's going to be a serious cost to that. Thomas. Um, okay, so I mean, first off, I just, I'm not sure that I accept the premise that things only matter if they show up in opinion polls, but maybe that's the economist in me speaking. But, you know, even if we take that as, uh, as the right way of thinking about things, um, here's two other reasons why, you know, these economic effects of Brexit might end up mattering. One is, you know, one thing we know about changes or you know economic effects of trade is that they tend to create some very concentrated losers there will be a few firms a few type of workers a few sectors that lose badly because of brexit maybe it's shellfish exporters maybe it's particular meat producers maybe it's the fashion industry and when you know particular sectors experience very bad losses that can trigger over time a really strong political backlash and i think that's what we saw in the u.s um, as a result of increased trade with China. The US probably benefited overall from increased trade with China, but there's been a big political backlash because certain parts, particularly of the kind of industrial Midwest, uh, suffered and there were big losses there. So that's one reason to think it might matter. The other would be kind of an analogy with austerity. Austerity did not initially prompt a big political backlash and it was popular for a time. But, you know, over time, it had costs. It left particular parts of the country really suffering. And probably, certainly, you know, if you believe some of the, the work that's been done on that, that was part of what contributed to, to Brexit. So just, you know, there can be kind of longer run effects that we don't necessarily see at the time, but where, you know, economic pain kind of expresses itself in other political events down the line. John or Anna? One, one thing. Can I, just, can I just butt in first and say I've screwed yes. up yet again. I've just been informed that we've got till 6.15, so oh, okay. we won't be able to escape Rory's question after all. We'll do that next. But John, on this one for now and then Anna. Yeah, um, I think Thomas's, Thomas's points are all well made. Um, the way that I've been thinking about this is uh, voters really don't like unemployment and recessions, um, but they're willing to put up with, uh, you know, eroding standards of living. Um, so if you think about 2010, immediately after the global financial crisis, then uh, Gordon Brown got kicked out and we got a new government. Um, then between 2010 and 2015, then we had falling real wages in the country, partly as a result of the austerity programme that Thomas mentioned. Um, and then David Cameron won an overall majority, um, did better. Um, and uh, while we did better economically after 2016, um, with the recovery in Europe and, and global acceleration of growth, we didn't do that well. I mean, investment was pretty stagnant and then Boris Johnson won a huge majority in 2019. So in some ways, I think we've all become too, um, we economists have become too complacent about the impact of economics on politics. And, and particularly with the rise of uh, identity politics, questions about social conservatism versus liberalism, that um, economics is not as an, uh, important a driver of politics as it was. But I think ultimately I'm, I'm, I'm with Thomas in the sense that um, we know that stagnant economies tend to be more polarised, more unhappy, and that politics tends to be more fractious and difficult. Um, and so while I don't expect there to be a, you know, a big hit, and in fact we're going to see a big increase in growth this year because of the recovery from the pandemic, 
And even if we have slow growth thereafter, I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to um, change the political fortunes of uh, Labour or the Conservatives much. But in time, it could make our politics more difficult. Anna, did you want to come on this? Uh, yes, I, I think in general, the last five years, four years have significantly changed my perception of what should matter and what in fact uh, matters. But I think with this one, every single company is very much aware right now whether it's easier for them to trade than it was in December. And these additional formalities, these additional requirements will end up being a cost to the bottom line. And that is something that these companies will see in their numbers year after year in the foreseeable future. So my question would be, you know, what will be the, the kind of the benefit that offsets that? What will be the positive um, the positive development and something that that shifts that, uh, that that perception. And I think you know that's one of the reasons why there's so much hype around things that are uh, in in tangible way not you know not not very likely to bring significant benefits, such as free ports. You know, are the ten free ports that we're going to get uh, are they going to change the, the these uh, these numbers? Not not very likely. Uh, are the additional FTAs with uh, CPTPP, uh, US, uh, Australia, New Zealand, are they going to help? And I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I think the hype around it and, and the kind of overstating of these potential benefits uh, is, is aimed at, at these companies to, to kind of tell them that, that there's something being done, that, 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 that things are going to get easier in the future. But again, it, it depends what, what happens in a couple of years, but these numbers are going to be very, very clear. Additional costs are going to be very, very clear. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right, Rory, you win. I'm going to ask this question now. Uh, is there a realistic prospect of the UK rejoining the EU before 2030? Who wants to say yes? I think I'm going to say no. I suspect everyone's going to say no, but I guess we could then get into a debate about, we could go back to our discussions around Brino and Brexit in name only. We, one could, I could certainly predict that we have a much softer form of Brexit by before 2030 um, for all the reasons that we've talked about. And it's even more likely if it doesn't look like that, <laughs> if it doesn't look like it's reversing Brexit, but just takes us a bit further to, towards the access to the single market in at least some of the key sectors. That, I think that's much more likely. And actually anything that's labelled as joint, rejoining the EU, I think will be a non-starter for quite a while. And you see this as possible under a Johnson government? I think, um, again, you know, he's, he's never um, lost, uh, lost points from uh, re-describing the same facts and saying they're different. And I think one could imagine him doing that in this case. But it's probably, it's, it's possibly, I think it's, it would be more likely, and then we can have debates about how unlikely this is, but I suspect it would be more likely under a Labour government though that in turn seems to be quite unlikely given the electoral map. And under a Labour government, which had had to make quite a lot of compromises to the Scottish nationalists, one could imagine, certainly, that could be part of their conversation. Okay, who wants to go next? Uh, I can. I mean, I, I, I think it's very unlikely um, rejoining for all of the reasons that Stephanie has laid out. Um, in, terms of, in terms of having a closer relationship, I'm... I'm torn and uh, really want to sit on the fence. Um, 
I, you know, I agree with the implications of your question, Anand, that Johnson is a convinced sovereigntist. You know, he really believes that um, we, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take any EU rules as much as we can, and he set his face against it. Um, so it's hard to see Johnson saying, right, you know, let's go for it. But having said that, I mean, it's so it's such early days about the economic consequences of this. Um, we we don't know how this is going to work politically for the Conservatives, particularly because a lot of the so-called red wall seats that really matter for them um, in terms of their new coalition are going to be some of the places which are going to be harder hit economically. Um, so you could potentially see Labour doing a bit better um, as a result of that, and then you know eventually saying right, let's let's go for a, go for a closer relationship. Um, the other question that I think you need to in, insert into this calculation, though, is what the EU wants. Um, and it's been pretty clear throughout that, it, that it, what it really wants is for there either to be a free trade agreement relationship um, or for there to be much closer, a much closer relationship. And they want to avoid the kind of relationship the Swiss, the Swiss have with the EU, where they have lots and lots of little bilateral treaties which had to be renegotiated the whole time. Um, so the difficulty that that poses for uh, Brino advocates is that if, if you are going to do it, it, it seems as things stand in terms of the EU's preferences that it's going to be a big political leap. You can't just do it bit by bit by bit. Now, maybe that will change. Um, a big reason for that was because the EU thought, um, you know, if it gave... Britain a kind of bespoke deal that it would lead others to, to question their own place within the single market and all of that and that you know if other countries remain in the EU and it's all fine that in a few years time they might be more willing or more open to that kind of thing but I think that's a, a question that we don't know the answer to yet. Anna? I'm not sure if I necessarily have that much to add. Uh, I would agree with John that uh, yeah closer relationship in terms of um, services, um, SPS requirements, hopefully, uh, but at the end of the day, very likely to stay in a, uh, the, the, the overall relationship is going to continue uh, to, to you know, take form of an FTA, meaning border charges, customs charges, and, and all the additional costs remain the same, that there's a limit to what you can do within that framework. And if we're locked into that framework, uh, you know, you, can move forward, but there will be there will always be uh, a kind of um, a border. Even if you look at Switzerland, that, that these costs remain whatever you do. I mean, the, the other parts are obviously significant for other parts of the economy, but but will not change the the bottom line cost. And Thomas, I, mean, I, I can agree with everyone else that by twenty thirty, the answer is uh, no. At the same time, I don't think the current deal is a stable endpoint that will persist over time. I mean, I, I think there are two obvious dimensions along which we are likely to see changes at some point. One is the Northern Ireland Protocol is so clunky and drives such a, you know, there is no other country that has this kind of internal border in part of what is supposed to be a unified country. And I, I can't see that. Uh, persisting. I don't know what that means will happen, but it doesn't seem like it's an end state that anyone is going to be happy with in the long run. And then the other point is that, you know, whenever 
Labour, likely in a coalition, does get back into power, there is going to be significant pressure on whoever the Labour leader is to move closer to the uh, EU. And you know, I would expect that there would be some movements in that direction. It, it's, it's always struck me as slightly, as, as a very strange outcome of the kind of torturous Brexit process we've been through, that we've ended up at a point where leaving the customs union is supposed to be an expression of sovereignty. I don't think, at, at the start of this process, no one was saying the point of Brexit is that we need to be able to make our own our own trade deals outside of, of the, the customs union. I kind of think that's something that once the current political fires die down will be something that there will be kind of a more narrowly economic calculation on. And the economic calculation is going to say you should be part you know, closer to the EU on that perspective. So I think we will see changes eventually, but it, probably not in the immediate future. Excellent. Anyone got any last words to add? We're going to finish about two minutes early, I think, which is no bad thing because you can catch the last of the sun. I must say I'm intrigued because my sense is that whilst the Labour Party is relatively happy saying that the Conservatives have done Brexit badly, they're far less comfortable actually suggesting any alternative. And I, I struggle to find that changing. They're actually, you're being kind to them. They're not very comfortable saying well, even the first part of that sentence. <laughs> they're, they're not saying anything about it at all. They're not comfortable saying anything at all, I don't think. Yeah. For, for obvious and sort of painful reasons. But listen, on that note, <laughs> can I just thank the four of you? Very, I mean, this is the irritating thing about as well. Firstly, we can't go for a drink, obviously. But secondly, Zoom will cut us all off at the same time. So I can't thank you in private. So let me thank you in public. I think it's been absolutely fascinating. John and Thomas, I hope you think your work has got a good airing this evening. You can go to the respective websites and find the actual... Uh, written work there that outlines the results we've been talking about tonight. Anna, thank you so much for joining us and to you too, Stephanie. And follow the Centre for Economic Performance, follow the Centre for European Reform and obviously follow the UK in a changing Europe if you can and have a lovely evening and we'll see you soon. Thank you all. Thanks, Anna.